Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the health literacy podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on February the 6th, 2018. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined, of course, by my co-host, who has finally been cleared of collusion and... <laughs> it's Frank Pasquale, sitting in the catbird seat in Baltimore, Maryland. Today, an overdue visit from Jacob Sherko, a law professor at the Innovation Center for Law and Technology at New York Law School. There, he teaches a variety variety of courses related to intellectual property. His research focuses on how scientific developments, especially in the biosciences, affect patent law and litigation. Professor Sherko is a prolific scholar, the author of over two dozen articles on these and related topics in both traditional law reviews and scientific journals. He's the winner of the Class of 2017 Teaching Award and was a 2016 finalist for the Association for the Teaching and Research of Intellectual Property, Young Researchers in Intellectual Property law essay contest a contest name probably longer than the essays that actually were submitted <laughs> hey jake <laughs> welcome to the pod great hearing your voice yeah thank you so much for having me nick thanks so much for having me frank uh this has been a dream of mine so uh achievement unlocked uh, bravo well, if if only so many dreams could be unlocked so easily <laughs> <laughs> yes if all you need is a web browser so tons of stuff that have come off your steaming keyboard lately. Fascinating stuff. But today we're going to concentrate on the CRISPR pieces. And uh, you certainly have cast a really interesting series of sort of differing frames around uh, the CRISPR-Cas9 technologies. So I thought we'd start with some pure IP, some pure patent uh, stuff, uh, and get that out of the way before I embarrass myself completely uh, with my ignorance. But I think as we look, uh, starting maybe with there's a, a great piece you did in the Journal of Law and Biosciences in 2017, I think it'd be really great to, one, um, give us the always necessary primer on CRISPR uh, before we talk about some of the, the core IP issues. Sure. Uh, always happy to talk about CRISPR and always happy to talk about the science aspect of it. So realizing that there are many different, uh, let's call them varieties of people with different technical backgrounds who listen to this podcast. Uh, Here is something like the college freshman version of that. It has long been a goal, if not the holy grail of molecular biology, to be able to kind of precisely edit DNA in living cells. Um, A bunch of halting attempts at doing this were made for decades after the molecular structure of DNA was first discovered. That's April 25th, 1953. That's DNA Day, for those who don't know. Um, uh, And these were cumbersome methods that were either imprecise or extremely costly or took a long time, or in some instances specific to a certain gene such that they were not flexible. Uh, And then somewhat out of this uh, primordial soup of gene editing technology arises full-born CRISPR and and CRISPR-Cas9 specifically. Uh, CRISPR-Cas9 essentially only has two components. It has this enzyme called Cas9, which is a type of nuclease that is uh, DNA and RNA cutting enzymes. Um, And then to get the CRISPR-Cas9 to work, you also need a small strand uh, of RNA, which is DNA's molecular sibling, if you will. Um, This RNA uh, 
uh, researchers found in 2012 and later in 2013 could be fashioned in such a way into a single piece that would both direct the Cas9 enzyme to the precise place along the genome where you wanted to cut it, as well as activate the enzyme itself to do the slicing. Uh, That is, the single guide RNA both guided and activated this Cas9 enzyme of interest. There's a lot of different variations on CRISPR. Other enzymes have since been discovered that work with the CRISPR system beside Cas9, but that is essentially the system that we have. This incredibly robust, flexible, cheap, precise, and astonishingly easy-to-use way to precisely edit the DNA in or the genome of cells. Um, So we're essentially there. So in this piece, you relate how, in fact, there are three core groups of scientists involved. I, uh, like most of your readers, I'm sure, had only ever heard of two. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about the differences or apparent differences between the intellectual property claimed by those groups and how they've played out um, in uh, litigation, both in the States and elsewhere? Yeah, sure. So the canonical story of the CRISPR patent dispute is that there's two warring factions, right? There is Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier on one side. Jennifer Doudna is the University of California, Berkeley, and Emmanuel Charpentier is now uh, a director of an institute at Max Planck. Uh, That's one side of the dispute. And on the other side, there's Feng Zhang, the wunderkind of the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. Um, For point of comparison, I I kind of feel obligated to point this out. Uh, Feng Zhang and I are the same age, so if I ever want to wake up in the morning and feel really, really bad about my accomplishments in life, I remember that. Um, (laughs) So uh, this is what the canonical story is, right? Um, That there's these two sides. uh, They filed competing patent applications, Jennifer Down and Manuel Charpentier, back in May 2012, Feng Zhang in October of 2012. um, And for a number of reasons, Feng Zhang's first patent and a number of follow-on patents were awarded prior to Doudna and Charpentier's patent application being issued by the PTO, and it is still not issued yet. That triggered an interference proceeding that most arcane of post-administrative procedures in the otherwise incredibly arcane U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, um, which is currently being appealed to the federal circuit. Like I said, this is all the canonical story. There's part of the canonical story that's left out, much to many people's amazement, and that is that six weeks prior to Jennifer Downer and Emmanuel Charpentier filing their patent application, a researcher whose name I'm going to almost certainly mispronounce right now, that is Virginia Sheeksnis at Vilnius University in Lithuania, filed a patent application that seemed to do exactly what Jennifer Downer and Emmanuel Charpentier's patent application claimed to to do. Uh, it seemed like, at the time, Virginia Sheeksnis was, in fact, the true first inventor of CRISPR. Um, so this is essentially the situation that we have now, at least in the United States. We have this appeal from the patent interference currently being conducted at the federal circuit. Briefs just came in. We are waiting on the scheduling of an oral argument date. I assume that'll be sometime in April or May, but we'll see. Uh, in the meantime, Virginia 
Cheeksneese's patent application has been issued by the PTO. He has an issued patent. So there's this hanging question out there about what to do about all this, right? If if uh, Doudna and Charpentier win at the federal circuit, does that mean that the kind of next step in their two-step is to then lose because Virginia Cheeksneese's patent is actually invalidating prior art? Um, if the Broad Institute wins, are they going to find a way to side or license from Virginia Cheeksneese to avoid uh, any further contest to their patents? Uh, nobody really knows. That's what makes this interesting. That's what's going on here in the United States. Very briefly, here's what's going on in the European Patent Office. Um, uh, relatively the same story, right? You know, Jennifer Doudna, Emmanuel Charpentier filed patent application. Uh, the Broad Institute with Feng Zhang as an inventor filed a, a, a patent application in Europe afterwards. Uh, but there, uh, Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier being the first applicants, their patent was actually issued first. Uh, the Broad Institute's patent was also issued, but because Doudna and Charpentier's patent was issued prior to theirs, the Broad's patent underwent what they call opposition proceedings. There's no really great analog to that here in the United States. Uh, during these opposition proceedings, which can last a couple of days, live trial-like proceedings before something called the Oppositional Division at the European Patent Office, a bureaucratic name that would make Terry Gilliam smile. <laughs> uh, and this was uh, these opposition proceedings were held the week of January 13th. The Opposition Division concluded that because Doudna and Charpentier appeared to have filed first and because there were technical deficiencies with the listing of inventors on the Broad Institute's patent application, that the Broad Institute's issued patents should all be revoked. Broad Institute is almost certainly going to appeal that decision to the European Patent Office Board of Appeal, or if they choose, the Board of Enlarged Appeal, and we'll see where that goes from there. So we're still somewhat in the thicket of patent litigation concerning who owns the foundational patents in this area right now. Uh, Europe, it's still something of a toss-up, although it looks like the Berkeley team is going to fare much better than the Broad Institute. And it seems like the situation is the opposite in the United States, where the appeal is ongoing. It is unlikely, I think it is extremely unlikely, that University of California is going to succeed. And it looks like the Broad Institute is, in fact, going to have the foundational patent estate to CRISPR-Cas9 here in the United States. That is just a fascinating overview, Jake. And just to recap, and just to be sure that I'm uh, clear on this, because I have to confess, last time I taught patent law was 10 years ago, I think, um, <laughs> which is that, so, so it's possible that you're going to have one patent owner in the US and one in Europe f for the foundational technology here. Yeah, it's possible. But then, you know, there's also the issue regarding Virginia Cheeksneese and where he fits in. Right now, not to complicate things further, I could talk about this much more than anyone wants to hear about it. Um, Virginia Cheeksneese has signed a license with University of California. So it seems like Virginia Schneeksneese and University of California are on the same side. What that means for the Broad Institute is anybody's guess. I would love to point our listeners to the article you wrote with George Contreras in Science that was on the CRISPR-Cas9 licensing agreements that have gone forward so far. And it's just fascinating the diagram you 
have of institutions like UC Berkeley, Vienna, Emmanuel Charpentier, um, and then just different hospitals, uh, licensing to surrogates who in turn are licensing these to lots of other licensees who have very specific applications that they're going after. And, you know, I, I unfortunately, it's a podcast. I can't fully explain this diagram online. <laughs> I'll try to be sure that we have a link to the uh, piece because it's so helpful. But I was wondering if you could give listeners a sense of your your overall position uh, in that piece with respect to the current efforts to commercialize or otherwise use this innovation and to get it into a more therapeutic mode. Yeah. So the piece that George and I wrote in Science deals with this concept of surrogate licensing that is rather than a university in-house technology transfer office engaging in the kind of day-to-day licensing that goes on with a foundational technology with uh, like this, it actually gives a single for-profit company a blanket license to both develop the technology for that company's own ends, and then also to try to sub-license the technologies to other commercial developers if uh, those uses are not in conflict with the surrogate. We call this surrogate licensing. One of the problems with surrogate licensing is that uh, the companies who are surrogates, they're not invested with any of the public-facing goals that a university technology transfer office would otherwise be. And especially for surrogates, which are publicly traded companies, they have a goal, some would say they have a responsibility to simply maximize profit for their shareholders. That's great for a for-profit company. That's less great for a university, which I would hope would be in some business other than maximizing the revenue it receives from licensing patents. The other problem with this is that it seems to put into conflict some of these surrogates with smaller commercial developers out there. If you're a small biotech company and you want to do something that's relatively similar to what the surrogate wants to do, maybe not exactly the same, it's one thing to go to the surrogate and ask for a license. It's another thing to go to the university tech transfer office. You would assume that the university TTO would be a little more permissive. In fact, a lot of university TTOs are very proud that they engage in robust, non-exclusive licensing practices. But that's not the business that the surrogate's in. The business that the surrogate's in is to protect its own turf. And if it can maximize revenue by sub-licensing the patent for uses it's just not interested in looking into, then it's going to do that too. Something that toes that gray area, it's probably going to be more trouble than the surrogate is looking for. So uh, this is the problems with the surrogate licensing model is the thing that George and I explore in this piece. And to give readers some more foundation about exactly who the surrogates are and who the sub-licensors are, we created the licensing chart, the diagram that accompanied the science piece, which I feel obligated to mention right now, even though the piece is less than a year old, I think it's less than a year old, it is uh, the diagram as to who the licenses are is woefully out of date by now. No no problem. I, I understand. It would be a dynamic field. I think the main purpose of that probably is just to give people a sense of how the different relationships flow. And I, I it's, But it's good to give that warning. The other thing I was going to mention, just broadening the scope a little bit, but staying in the general area of licensing is I was on a panel commenting on George and David Graywall's work on healthcare just a couple of years ago. And that panel brought to mind some of David Graywall's work with respect to peer production, infrastructure, synthetic biology, and sort of the, some of the notions of uh, how is it possible to go in a direction away from the sort of bi-dole direction of university commercialization of technology transfer and in a direction of, say, more open access to these things. 
things. And I'm just wondering, Jacob, in, in your uh, view of things, is it possible to uh, go in both directions at once? To, for example, try to make sure that there is some substrate of technology available or of a patentable innovation available so that everybody gets to work from that foundation, but then that we have also simultaneously try to develop institutions that are uh, taking advantage of the profit motive and innovation. Yeah, I think so. And I think George and I provide what I would like to think is a kind of relatively simple fix to this in our science piece. And that is that rather than just shoving off all of the patent licensing responsibilities to a surrogate company, uh, most of this work should be done in-house through the University Technology Transfer Office, precisely because one would hope that the university TTO is invested with the same public goals that the larger university is. And then when it comes to licensing, uh, the university should simply employ a gene-by-gene approach, or in some very limited cases, a disease indication-by-disease indication approach. Rather than saying, here, surrogate, here's all therapeutic uses for CRISPR-Cas9, the university should simply auction off each gene and who wants to uh, work with the technology there. Um, this is somewhat. Uh, this was proposed to a somewhat lesser extent by um, Lisa Willett and Ian Ayers in their uh, Bidol piece, which appeared in the Cornell Law Review last year. And the idea is that using limited auctions like these really get at the heart about whether exclusive licensing in any area is required or not. Um, if you are going to host, uh, uh, you know, if you're going to try to auction off non-exclusive licenses first, and a bunch of people bite, then that's proof that exclusive licenses are not required in that area. If only after you offer exclusive licenses are people willing to pay, then that seems to be pretty good evidence um, that companies are really only willing to engage in the research and development in this field with exclusive licenses. So a similar approach should probably be used here, right? Auction off gene by gene. People want to buy non-exclusive licenses, go for it. If they're only willing to use exclusive licenses, then that's proof that we probably need some exclusive licensing in this area and kind of do it that way. So um, I think, you know, rather than the comfort, if you want to put it like that, of pushing all this stuff off to a single for-profit entity that is doing the same thing as other competitors out there, keeping this closer to universities' collective vests is probably a better way to go through the auction model. So in the piece with George, you make the, I think, the really great observation how CRISPR is a platform technology and that it's highly unlikely one company would be able to explore sort of all the possible uses and and so on. Given that, and given that the foundational patents, as I understand them, are somewhat overlapping rather than identical, why isn't this just being settled with cross licenses? Why are people going to the mat on this? Is it the money? Yeah, that is a really great question. So the first way to answer this is, you know, cross licenses among who, right? So the kind of first, if you want to think about this, maybe the, the biggest question out there is why hasn't this been settled between Berkeley and the Broad Institute? That is, I kind of hate to put it this way, anybody's guess. I actually think, or I, I, I thought, maybe this is past tense now, that their collective efforts combined uh, would have garnered the institutions a lot more cash than their separate efforts where they fight with one another. I had wrote about this in a Nature piece back in 2016, saying that one way through this dispute between these educational institutions is simply to set up a collective foundation that engages in the licensing of their collective technology. That would be, you know, a, a huge uh, way to generate revenue, both on the commercial side and for
for academic research as well. But that's just simply not what the universities have chosen to do. They have chosen to just go to the mat on this and just, you know, slug it out uh, uh, from since the genesis of the patent dispute through now. I, I don't think at this point that they are going to settle their dispute until, you know, essentially someone cries uncle either in the US or y- Europe. So, you know, I guess that's what we have to look forward to if that's uh, what we want to. Um, the next question, though, is that why hasn't this been settled through clause licenses through either some of the surrogates or through some of the sub-licensees out there? And the answer to that question is it has. Uh, maybe one of the most interesting strategies, if that's the appropriate phrasing to be used here, um, for cross-licensing in the CRISPR-Cas9 technology concerns agricultural uses of CRISPR-Cas9. Uh, last year, uh, still two big players on this front, there was DuPont, which had aligned with University of California and Virginia's Cheeksnees. And then there was Monsanto, which had aligned with the Broad Institute. They are both in the business of genetically editing crops. They had different licenses. They would seem to be at odds. And lo and behold, there is this announcement that Monsanto and DuPont, and I think it's actually DuPont Pioneer is the subsidiary, um, have engaged in this kind of massive non-exclusive cross-licensing deal, which by any other name would be called a pool, a patent pool. Although if you mention that phrase to them, they say, no, 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 this isn't a patent pool. This is something else entirely. They've engaged in this cross-licensing deal that essentially allows anyone out there to take a non-exclusive license to the collective technology among University of California, Virginia's Cheeksnees, and the Broad Institute. It's pretty astonishing. So it seems like cooler heads have prevailed among sub-licensees because I'm assuming that there's, you know, some dollar figure that makes sense for everyone to do business together in a friendly manner, and they figured out what the dollar figure is. And maybe the answer is that there's something more than money at stake between University of California and the Broad Institute, and that's why we haven't seen those two parties settle yet. Perhaps. You know, no one on either side is really talking as to the guts of this stuff. Let's move on to some of the regulatory issues. But I I wanted to let you start with, I thought, what was a very interesting observation in the genome medicine piece that you and many collaborators put out uh, last year. And it was a a plea to avoid worst-case scenarios, because I think your point is, if all you do is concentrate on worst-case scenarios, you're going to attract the worst type of regulation. And so as part of that, you made an interesting distinction between germline and non-germline issues. Before we get into the specifics of the, the regulatory issues that you posed in that case, and also in your Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine piece, which went over um, parallel territory, could you could you explain how germline, non-germline comes into play and this idea of avoiding worst case scenario? Much of the talk about regulating CRISPR has focused on the public's fear of designer children, right? This is like, you know, uh-huh. this is this is the thing that everyone is scared about, rightfully or wrongfully, that now we have this technology in hand, we are going to use it to make all of our children, I don't know, you know, seven feet tall, blonde hair, blue eyed, some kind of horrible eugenic 
variant out there. And that's just utterly ridiculous. <laughs> it's utterly ridiculous on a number of levels, but not the least of which is that the technology is just not ripe to use it that way right now, and that no one is crazy enough to attempt to do this in a human embryo today. And so the idea is that if you're, if, if that is the object of what the regulatory platform is going to be, then that's going to do two things for the actual clinical research being conducted in uh, CRISPR now. The first thing that that is going to do is that it is probably going to lock up, it is probably going to stymie a lot of otherwise extremely helpful, un, or not I'm say unethical, but less ethically insidious research into using CRISPR uh, in the clinic right now. It's probably going to stymie a lot of the research out there. And the second thing that that seems like that's going to do um, is that it seems to also mask some of the uh, actual ethical concerns that do go into some of the clinical work for what we call non-germline engineering that is being conducted in the clinic now as well. That by focusing on worst case scenarios, you're both preventing the good and you are overshadowing some actual bads uh, that are happening or soon to be happening uh, now. Um, so, I mean, that was the broad thrust of that genome piece, uh, which uh, came out of a working group at University of Tasmania and Diane Nichols' group there. Got it. And I think for the rest of the show, we might just try to divide the conversation into two bits. And one is, how do we advance the good therapeutic applications, do the translational work as fast as possible? And secondly, how do we respond to some of the legitimate concerns about the need for regulation? I mean, especially given some of the developments in China and elsewhere. So maybe we could start with the first thing. And I mean, I guess, and I hate to put you on the spot, Jake, but if you had to uh, identify in terms of issues ranging from reimbursement to uh, the organization of IP to um, other aspects of licensing and medical practice, what would you say are the biggest barriers to widespread therapeutic adoption of CRISPR to really solve concrete problems in the next uh, 10 to 20 years? Yeah. Wow. That is a tough task. So the, the first one, <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, no, no. So the first problem is actually a scientific one. Um, and not to, you know, I realize this is the week in health law, not uh, this week in Jake explaining scientific stuff. But, you know, the first problem is a scientific one. And that is that while CRISPR is this really amazingly powerful system, uh, you still have to find a way to get the system into human cells, which do not endogenously produce uh, the Cas9 enzyme, or at least another nuclease that we found yet that works with the CRISPR system. So the problem is vector, right? The problem is like, can we find a virus that works that actually introduces this in a people's cell? Can we do it in cells outside of the body and then reintroduce those cells into a human patient? This is important, I think, actually from a bioethical and for that matter, from a health regulatory standpoint, because it is often those vectors that present some of the kind of most significant hangups in the clinic. Um, problems with vectors, toxicity from vectors have, uh, in other gene editing trials, have uh, led to deaths of subjects. Uh, and obviously, that's something that we want to avoid. That also is like the biggest bioethical concern with conducting clinical trials and experimental technologies like this now. So finding kind of safe 
uh, easy to use, replicably confident vectors for using CRISPR should, I think, be one of a uh, one of the more serious focuses of regulators now in terms of ushering further CRISPR clinical trials out there. Beyond that, um, I do think that another large concern in the kind of CRISPR, if you want to call it public health space, is choosing targets that are most likely to take advantage of CRISPR as a technology. Um, right now, it seems like a lot of the gene therapy, the, the recent gene therapy technologies that are coming online seem to be devoted to diseases for which there's a relatively or pretty small, I should say, patient population out there. There is some research being conducted in the CRISPR space for diseases uh, that have a much more significant patient population and for whom the, uh, uh, I, I'm going to say the genetic etiology of the disease is such that CRISPR is a likely fix. I'm thinking about uh, CRISPR Therapeutics. They're a company out there. They're conducting a lot of research both on beta thalassemia as well as sickle cell anemia. Um, these are both single gene traits, in some cases often just a single base pair uh, happens to be at fault in the disease in a particular patient. Those seem to be ideal targets for using CRISPR in this area. But that's not necessarily always the case, or that's not necessarily the path that's being followed by all companies doing research in CRISPR out there. And so I think regulators, and I you know, realize that the kind of regulators who are doing this stuff in the United States don't necessarily take larger public health considerations under their wing, right? You know, FDA doesn't chastise you for picking too small of a patient population for your, for your drug. Um, but that's something that I think we need agencies to start thinking about. You know, there's been a lot of literature out there uh, by a lot of really excellent scholars talking about the disconnect between the regulatory approval process and the kind of public health innovation space. And so, you know, CRISPR seems like it is the ideal candidate for at least making an attempt here in the United States of tying those two things together here. So, I mean, I, I think that kind of agency disconnect is is uh, maybe the most significant hangup for getting these technologies as widely deployed into the public uh, as we would like them to be maybe in the next 10 years. Right on point. I was reading up on some device law and policy yesterday and ran across a piece by FDA's Jeff Shuren back in 2016 in JAMA. And he was talking there about, you know, the usual FDA risk-based approach to approval and, you know, the, the usual trials and, and types of scientific evidence and base and so on. But noted that with so many of the innovative products coming down the line, those approaches may run into real hurdles. I mean, if you're going to be looking at devices that you're essentially, um, you know, floating through people's systems and lighting up and uh, Wi-Fiing back or Bluetoothing back. Um, these are not things that typically you're going to be able to sort of use a placebo-like model in trials or for approval. And I think you, you may be taking us into similar territory here, which I guess also leads into what kind of FDA regulation would you be considering? Are these biosimilars? Are they devices? It, it's not entirely clear, is it? It's not entirely clear. I mean, so first of all, because the actual enzyme, well, so it, it depends how the system is introduced into the cell. So there's a couple of possibilities out there, which some older guidances from FDA 
FDA seem to suggest are likely going to be the path forward. So first, to the extent that the modification, that is, you know, CRISPR being the thing that modifies the cell, to the extent that the modification takes place outside of the cell, and that the cell is then reintroduced back into the patient, FDA seems to consider that to be cell therapy. And they seem to consider that to be cell therapy independent of the way in which the DNA of the cell outside of the body happens to be altered. Um, big question as to whether that makes sense anymore. Uh, this was uh, this uh, the guidance that I'm thinking of uh, that was put out concerning this definition of cell therapy was all the way back in, I think it was 1993, which relative to CRISPR is like ancient history. Um, so we may want to think about whether updating that guidance to make a distinction between chemically modified cellular therapy and genetically modified cellular therapy makes sense. To the extent that the modification is, you know, kind of, let's call it traditional viral vectors, right? Using, for example, a certain uh, adeno-associated virus or AAV vector to deliver the genetic payload into a cell, um, that seems to be gene therapy. And FDA has a number, you know, quote unquote gene therapy, I should probably say. Big debate as to what the definition of gene therapy is. Um, But FDA considers that to be gene therapy and they regulate it uh, as gene therapy as such. Um, The other question actually goes with a mechanism that's been proposed, and I think there's some work being done about this um, through CRISPR therapeutics, is rather than delivering the genetic information to cells and having the cells produce not only their own Cas9 enzyme, but their own single guide RNA, why not just deliver the end product to cells, right? Why not use, for example, nanoparticles to deliver the enzyme and the single guide RNA directly to cells, uh, and that way cells don't have to produce it themselves. We're not kind of altering the genome necessarily in the same way. Um, What about doing that? Um, And, you know, big question as to what that is. I mean, that is probably a biologic under FDA's definitions because it would need to be made through an essentially biological process. Um, At the same time, this is like some kind of weird combination between nanotechnology and biologics, and I don't necessarily know where it fits. Maybe the best analog that we currently have are what we call monoclonal antibody drug conjugates, uh, CADSILA, to treat breast cancer is probably a good case of this. This is a monoclonal antibody. This is like your garden variety biologic out there that is conjugated, that is, you know, glued, if you want to think of it like that, to a small molecule drug with the idea that the monoclonal antibody will direct the drug to the appropriate cell type that it needs to go to do the work that it needs to do. Um, And FDA has regulated those products as just straight biologics rather than some kind of combination. Um, Whether that'll continue under this nanoparticle framework, I don't know. You know, we're in kind of new ground here. If this is a should question, I generally, uh, I would like to think of myself as a fan for like the combination of regulation in two areas, because it seems like both aspects of them present both safety and efficacy issues. But we've seen kind of combination regulation go awry before. And so I'm hesitant. uh, Let's call me hopeful, but hesitant that that's the right way forward. in terms of our closing, you know, just in terms of thinking about the future of the tech, and I, I totally bear in mind your earlier comment about uh, it's uh, we've we've gone very scientific in the show. Uh, and, and, <laughs> Sorry, uh, no, but but I think it's actually it's really really helpful because it's one of those areas. I think this and blockchain are the two areas where I feel like there is so much going on in terms of conversation and policy conversation that seems a little adrift from where the actual tech is. 
But I guess just some closing thoughts, if you will, on why the worry about the designer babies is probably something that's way, way off. Or, you know, are there analogical problems that we might uh, want to think about with respect to, say, ecosystem disruption? Are either of those on your radar screen? And if so, within what time period? Yeah. So, you know, maybe it makes sense for me to take the second part first, right? Are we so worried about designer children that we're worried about, you know, altering the course of human evolution? No. And I don't think we're not only anywhere near that. I mean, I don't think we'll be any, I don't think we'll be anywhere near that any time in the near to even long-term future. So um, I realize that there's a lot of commentators out there who are worrying about doing that right now, but the reality is no matter how cheap, easy, plentiful, available the designer baby technology is out there, I'm trying to think of a way to put this as politely as I can. The old-fashioned way is much easier and has its own advantages. <laughs> um, and I would be astonished if the world stopped making babies <laughs> that way. So, you know, that's my plea there. Um, you know, I realize that this is an academic podcast, but if I may be so bold as to insert a terrible pop culture reference here, if you guys remember the movie Demolition Man back from 1991 starring Sandra Bullock and Sylvester <laughs> Stallone, um, the entire world uh, has essentially gone the designer baby route and essentially only virtually has sex. And if I'm not mistaken, at the end of the movie, that is abandoned at the behest of Sylvester Stallone. So I think even in a world in in which that is possible and easy to do, there will always be individuals out there with or without the charisma of Sylvester Stallone in the early 90s of, again, doing it the old-fashioned way, right? So so that's the second part of your question first. And, and just to be clear, Hank Greeley has written a book about just this I would like to plug called The End of Sex. What a wonderful title. And, and, a, and a book that he has discussed on this very show. Yes, yes, yes. And so, you know, he provides a much more nuanced description than I'm providing for right now. But as for the first question, right, you know, why should we just be not that worried about the designer babies from an ethical standpoint and uh, or at least be worried about them right now? Um, and I think kind of here's why. So first, there are the relative concerns, right? The kind of relative concerns is we do so many other things to choose the genetic makeup of our children and whether we have children at all right now, then frankly, I think designer children using CRISPR ever will, right? Um, we live, especially in the United States, of just, there's no other way to put this, right? A uh, apocalyptic case of a sort of mating uh, happening now where people only of certain economic uh, and social strata are having children among themselves. You know, you spin that out 100, 200 years and society is going to look interesting, especially if there's not a lot of income mobility among social classes, which is certainly what we're seeing in the United States now, right? Um, that is has much more far-reaching effects than designer babies do. And so being an ethicist worrying about designer babies is to um, really kind of be uh, turning a blind eye to some of the larger problems. Um, the other, you know, deal with some of the technical issues I've mentioned before, the kind of technology isn't really ready for it right now. I don't think, you know, eh, because we're uncertain about the safety of doing this, we would be crazy to foist that on a child. And there is no clinic in the United States that is willing to do this. And even in other regimes where the regulatory enforcement is more 
relax, they're not doing it there either, right? They're still doing the somatic editing of the human genome. Um, you know, we may hear rumors about there's some mad scientist out there trying to create a designer baby, but I, you know, that's like the old rumors about cloning of humans, right? You know, a lot of smoke, if you will, and no fire. Uh, so I, I just frankly just kind of don't think it's going to happen. Um, the kind of last problem is that let's say hypothetically that uh, this was a real possibility that we really could edit uh, uh, safely, cheaply, easily a deleterious gene from a child uh, and prevent them from having a lifelong genetic illness. Um, it would be a shame to just kind of out of pocket say no to that uh, simply because we're worried about the ethics of like designer children and super children. Um, Steven Pinker and, you know, obviously a man whose scholarship has uh, ignited, I think that's maybe the only appropriate word here, uh, ignited responses from ethicists from all corners. Um, Steven Pinker has written about just this, right? Would we really let the fear of designer children stymie our efforts to actually cure someone of a genetic illness? That would be a terrible shame. That would be, if you pardon the phrasing, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So I think ethicists who want to explore the CRISPR-Cas9 technology, I think for all of these reasons, focusing on the designer babies issue is just frankly silly, right? There's, there's a lot of other issues that we should be concerning ourselves with, and that just really ain't one of them. If you want to play that out, Netflix has got a new show called Altered Carbon that uh, certainly creates a, a far more dystopian vision than the one that you give us, Jake. And that was The Week in Health Law. A big thank you to Professor Schokau for joining us. On Twitter, you can find him at J-S-H-E-R-K-O-W. Jake, great, great work. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Frank. We post our show notes at twog.com. On Twitter, I am at Nicholas Terry, and Frank is... Well, out of that altered carbon reference, I am at HealthPI as a uh, cyber spirit entity on Twitter. And you're already seven feet tall, so all we need to do is the <laughs> eyes and the hair. Thank you for joining us, and have a legally interesting but healthy week. Ha, ha, ha.